welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. Another episode of season two with your hosts, Tofik and myself, Sharoy. Thought we'd address from the outset that Anna is still working on this podcast behind the scenes. She's just been taking a little break and she'll be back soon for any of you who are who are bored of hearing the two of us on your on your bi-weekly episodes or fortnightly. Yeah, yeah. We've and we've delayed this episode a little because we've been dealing with some urgent work, but we are excited about it because it's slightly different to what we normally cover. And the guests are really interesting and clearly well known. They're followed by many, many people on social media. They've got a wide reach in terms of the work they do. So why don't we let everyone know what what we're what what's in store for for the next hour? Yeah, I mean, got two great guests on, both of whom are journalists that cover the the sphere within which we work. Right? Uh, we have Nicola Kelly and we have May Bullman. Both of their names are no doubt familiar to you if you're listening. But even if they aren't familiar, we have May's social handles at the end of her segment, and I'm sure you can find Nicola on Twitter as well. The work they do is so important, particularly when um, when you're trying to apply pressure or at least increase awareness from all angles as to the plight of our clients. I mean, th- there is work that lawyers do, of course, but we, we, we tried to cover this in the episode, that there is a massive amount of work and pressure that is put put forth by journalists. And sometimes, T, you'll know this better than anyone, sometimes journalists can can put so much pressure on that they can get outcomes quicker than us on certain occasions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, I've always said it's a combination of, of a number of factors, but often... You know, a, a report that really does hit home and it gets to the Home Office and they're either shamed into acting or they want to prevent, you know, f- further exposure, they'll do something, whether it's, uh, you know, a grant of status or taking someone off a plane or releasing some someone or a lot of people very quickly, as we may have seen in Manston. It is a powerful tool. Yeah, and, and both of our guests have played a vital role in ensuring that a lot of the a lot of the the falsities and the untruths that are advanced by members of the government and and other sections of society are, are really put to bed through the work that they do. So, I think even though it's only been a couple of minutes, you've probably had enough of Tevik and I. So, why don't we just get into the meat of the episode and introduce our first guest? So, everyone, today we have Nicola Kelly. Um, she is a freelance journalist. She works on and focuses on UK immigration and asylum matters, and she writes primarily for The Guardian. Um, Nicola, thank you so much for appearing on our podcast. You, you've been very supportive in the, uh, of our podcast, and we thank you for that. And um, obviously this episode, we want to focus on journalism um, and how it kind of connects to the, the work we do and, and, and the general issues in relation to asylum and immigration. So it'd be really good because you've written some really important articles and reports in recent times on immigration asylum, m- most recently in the last couple of weeks on some really important issues. So before we get into that, though, I, ju- I found out that you used to work for the Home Office, which is quite interesting. So let's start. Let's start with how you got into journalism and in particular your time in the Home Office. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I I talk about this quite a lot. Um, and I almost feel like I have to confess that I worked for the Home Office. Um, it was back in 2014, and it was only for a year. Um, so I worked for the Foreign Office for many, many years, and I was posted overseas. Uh, and I'd done a number of back-to-back postings overseas. So as you probably know, you then have to come back to the UK and do a posting here. So I was seconded over to the Home Office press office uh, in 2014 at the height of the hostile environment. The go-home vans had been circulating. There was lots of things around sham marriages and student visa, um, English language testing centre scandals. And there was always something, um, always some fire to fight. So um I didn't last that long there. <laughs> um, I dreaded walking in those doors every day. Um, they were very much revolving doors for me because I went quite quickly out and moved into journalism. And I've been focusing on the home on the home office and reporting on UK immigration and asylum ever since. So, so what you, what was your role there? So you were were you were like a press officer? Yeah, on the UK immigration and asylum desk, or immigration and security wow. as it was at the time. So James Brokenshire was my minister and Theresa May was obviously home secretary at the time. Wow so you had to react to 
journalists like yourself now coming, you know, get it, getting through to the Home Office press team saying, look, we're about to write about Windrush or about the latest hostile environment policy that's either been declared unlawful or uh, you've exposed something really horrendous in what's going on amongst asylum seekers or refugees. And you've got to react to that. So how, how does that process work? What, 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 did you, what did you have to do? You had to, I assume, liaise with officials and then get back to, the, to, to that journalist, right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a news desk who take calls um, and they operate much as a call centre does. So they will take, you know, log calls from a journalist. So I speak to them really frequently now. Um, it really helps knowing how the process works, actually, as a journalist. Um, and then the specialist desks, as they were known, and they're still known, um, which is what I was on, on the immigration desk, will be preparing lines for ministers, um, will be working on speeches, will be sort of proactively um, preempting stories that might be coming out and putting um, you know, submissions into boxes with prepared lines. Um, that's supposed to be the way it works but most of the time you're fighting fires and much of the role I mean probably at least 80% of it was purely reactive so it was you know a call comes in as you say and you have to just jump on it and let special advisors know who will then obviously let ministers know that this call has come in from you know this particular journalist um, it was always the same names as well and I know I'm now one of them which um, is a bit of honor really because <laughs> every time I call now they say oh hi Nicola I think I'm seen as a bit of a traitor actually at the home office press <laughs> yeah I knew the way the process works um which I think makes me as a journalist kind of difficult for them to fob off because uh they can say oh you know we'll probably have that ready for you but it won't be ready for this length of time or um yeah they, I, I know the way the process works so I can say to them well you know I know that's not true I know that's not the way it works so um you know could you do x y and z yeah yeah that's really fascinating and 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 as you said you were there at a time where you know, a lot of people believe that you know the hostile environment became a thing, although many of us know that it, it was difficult for many, many years before that. But it really started to to deteriorate, I think, in terms of hostile policies, oppressive, really oppressive government policies that affected a lot of vulnerable people. And it was around that 2014 onwards. So you were at the time where you started to see how it was deteriorating and is that was that a, a reason for you to have left or was that where you just you had enough yeah I mean um shortly before I arrived the net migration the tens of thousands target had been announced by Cameron and May um and we were always sort of working towards these targets um there was a big scandal around English language testing um and sort of cheating in an English language testing centre there was loads of stuff around sham marriages um and it was just yeah I felt morally compromised on a day-to-day basis and it just it didn't really sit right with me and I'd by that stage worked up quite a lot of contacts um you know in the home office in Marsham Street but also at UKVI centres across the UK and um I knew how journalism worked pretty well I'd I'd watched broadcasters preparing for lives I'd watched um, you know, I'd led press conferences for the Foreign Office, so I, I knew the ways that journalists found stories um, and, you know, how they went about it in terms of pitching and writing and deadlines, etc. So, yeah, I had a good sense of how journalism worked, but also how the Home Office worked. So it felt like quite a kind of natural fit to, to move into UK immigration and asylum and sort of specialise in that area. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a, 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 a very different time, even though at the time we... we thought how bad it was with Theresa May as Home Secretary. Um, but that just seems like a very such a long ago and a very different time to, to the last, especially in the last two, three years with Priti Patel as Home Secretary and then we see Suella Brabman as Home Secretary. What, what, and, you, you know, you still speak to your, um, your ex-colleagues or people at the Home Office. How, how do you think they're dealing with having to respond day after day to stories that really show that you know the home these home secretaries have really very little regard for 
the suffering that we're all seeing. How, how, how are they dealing with it as, a, as, as just literally, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to do their job, aren't they? They're just getting on with their, their job. But how, how do they deal with that kind of level of oppression? Yeah, I mean, they are. They are apolitical, impartial, you know, supposedly. Of course, everyone's got their own opinions and views about the ways these things should work. And you don't necessarily have to agree with the policies of your, your ministers or your secretary of state. Um, I did a piece in August for Tortoise Media on this issue. It was obviously when Priti Patel was uh, during her tenure. And uh, I spoke to, I got back in touch with um, my, my old black book, not that I have a black book, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Back in touch with loads of contacts um, there at the Home Office uh, to figure out sort of what their feeling was about about what was going on there and sort of how the Rwanda policy um, came to pass. And uh, I spoke to our Home Office, the Twitter account. I spoke to lots of different um, people who are there now, um, not just in Marsham Street, but across the UK as well. And there was sort of widespread um, discontent really with with the with the work with the nature of the the work that they were having to to see through on a day-to-day basis um and but there was also a sense of sort of hope that people were speaking up um and I never really had that there was no outlet when I was there um so yeah I mean I, I definitely hear stories about people feeling pretty discontented um and leaving en masse <laughs> um there's a very high turnover at the home office um possibly one of the highest across Whitehall um and that's because of the toxic nature of these policies the culture of the department you know it's very work hard play hard very insular defensive closes ranks at every given opportunity um and you know you've got a home secretary Priti Patel now Braverman who just refuses to speak to anybody external actors you know absolutely refuses to speak to anybody other than border force officials when they go to Dover or you know to ever speak to an asylum seeker or a refugee they don't engage at all with real people um NGOs you know that lots of other departments across Whitehall do but the Home Office systematically refuse to do that um and that's done on purpose you know that it's very very deliberate that they that they avoid speaking to uh, people who don't agree with their policies yeah yeah that's very interesting and moving on to sort of some of the stories you've written I mean you've I've just been looking at some of the stuff that you've covered you know in the last few months I mean you've you've covered a story about British-born children uh, who, who are children of Albanians face deportation Afghan embassy staff remaining in hiding despite being eligible for UK lo- uh, relocation women be- migrant women being charged uh, for NHS maternity services in England you know you cover quite a wide range of issues that that are ultimately in relation to migration some of them are difficult right you, d- you know talking about the impact on children having parents deported and can you tell me a bit about that process i mean when you are dealing almost exclusively in exposing human suffering it must be difficult because you're interviewing people no doubt you're you're writing about these issues can you maybe talk about a couple of stories that recently you know that you covered that have affected you that have really resonated because i think our listeners would be interested in that yeah the one that jumps to mind is the day after the rwanda deal was announced it was announced on a wednesday evening um i was on holiday with my partner and our baby uh, on the kent coast uh, for a couple of days and on the thursday morning i said i've got to go down to the coast i've got to speak to small boat arrivals i've got to speak to real people to see if they've heard about this deal um and you know whether what they think about it all so I went down there um they'd all heard about Rwanda it hadn't deterred any of them from crossing that morning um and yeah the thing that really stuck with me is I remember someone saying you know you don't know Africa we know Africa we can't go back there um you know we'll die here um we'll die you know en masse We'll, we'll we'll commit suicide and you know, hearing those stories day in, day out, obviously really takes its toll on you. Um, and yeah, there are some, as I'm sure you know, from from working on these issues, you know, on a, on a daily basis, some stories really do 
stick with you. Um, and there was one, another one that jumps to mind is a Syrian interpreter who had worked for the Foreign Office. He'd worked for the White Helmets for many years. Um, and he'd been waiting two years for his substantive interview. He'd been waiting long, you know, really long time for a decision uh, following that interview. And he was suicidal. Um, you know, his mental health was really um, deteriorating. But four days after publication, he was granted asylum, as is, you know, quite quite common uh, with the Home Office, you know, stories published and within days, sometimes even hours of publication, someone could be granted leave to remain. Um, so I was really glad, you know, from a personal individual perspective, I was really glad that he'd, you know, been been given his leave to remain. But um, I felt really angry, actually, that that's the way that the system works. Um, I do think ultimately one story can have a huge impact, but I don't think it should come down to, you know, an, an individual getting in touch with a journalist to for everything to jump into gear. So, yeah, I think kind of on, on an individual level, stories do stick with you, as you know. Making Trying to make changes to the system uh, feels a little bit more frustrating. Yeah, and I think you touched on something quite quite interesting because we we have to have to grapple with this a lot when we deal with media and you know we like to work with journalists who we know are that you know they're responsible they're ethical uh, and sometimes you you are you do want a story out there to show how how you know how important and how how um your client has suffered at the hands of government you want people to read about it right but it's always a balancing act to know whether when the you know the, the the classic dilemma is always a journalist saying thanks Tofik I'd love to hear from you but I've actually more importantly want to hear from your client <laughs> you know we you know that's what who we want to hear from which obviously makes sense we want to hear from the, the the boring lawyer you want to hear from the client and then there's always this dilemma this you know this this do do we put your client you know do you, do you put your client who's very vulnerable to a journal will that have implications on their case on their on their own, you know, their their well being, will the journalist handle it properly? You know, there's always that decision that you make, and in ge- in general, the response is always no. Like you 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 wouldn't normally put your client forward in journalist reports because of, of because of those concerns, right? But how how do you grapple with that? How do you sort of because uh, you you've you know I've read your reports; they are really sensitive to that those issues but how do you how do you deal with that because you instinctively want to report on in the most I guess powerful way which is to hear from from someone who's actually suffered yeah absolutely and I tend not to report on anything without having the voice of someone directly affected by the policy I think there's two different types of stories there's kind of policy stories which tend to be quite dry and there's people stories which is you know the individual cases that you're talking about um or that Syrian interpreter for example but I'd argue um that every story should have a mixture of both every policy story should have the voice of a real person in there which is why we contact you (laughs) um to see whether you can whether you'd be you know willing to put somebody forward of course we understand the vulnerabilities of of people that we speak to and you know these things can be handled very sensitively we always um you know good journalism (laughs) will always of which actually you know there is a, a fair amount and particularly for the outlets i work for um we always protect our sources. We always protect their identity. So even when someone waives the right to anonymity, I'll always, you know, be sure that I don't use their, you know, their country of origin. Uh, most, you know, most of the time, unless someone's really happy for me to, to include that detail. Um, certainly not name, you know, location of where they are in the UK, where they're at with their claim. There's so, there's so many things, particularly in print, you know, broadcast is slightly different, but particularly in print, we can, people's identities or, or sort of protect their identities um, really carefully and I'm kind of at pains to do that often um, you know we we have to be so careful we've got a as journalists we've got a duty of care to the people that we speak to and you know lots of outlets you know with dubious quality to the reporting uh, don't always don't always do that so I think there is a marked difference between between journalists who understand the sensitivities uh, and the vulnerabilities of the people they speak to and those who don't adhere to the duty of care they have to contributors who take their time to to speak to us 
Yeah. And talking about print journalism, um, again, another thing that we as, I guess, as lawyers who sometimes want stories out, whether it's simply to rejoice in a victory or to expose something that's happened to a client because you really believe people should know about it. Whatever the reason or the motivation of getting stories out there, the the dilemma is, do you engage with reporters and journalists who work for papers that aren't really going to be on your side generally? They'll still be interested in the story, but they may report it in in a very different way, but it will still reach an audience Mm. that we want to reach because we want to change, try and change the narrative. So whether or whether or not you think certain judges need to read about actual real life stories, as opposed to by the time it gets to a court hearing, that's all lost, or you can't as necessarily as lawyers present it in a, in a way legally that you can in 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 journalism, which is a very powerful tool, right? Or whether it's to change the public's opinion. So you write about the the impact on children of Albanian parents who are who are to be deported the current narrative out out there is really negative i think towards albanian asylum seekers right now what do you think about that because you obviously you're freelance and you but you do write predominantly for let's say the guardian you know your readership although the guardian has a massive reach in terms of their online presence that's for sure but generally you would think the guardian readers kind of already get it they they understand where you're coming from do you not feel sometimes that you want to try and get your message and those stories into the telegraph the times and god forbid the sun or you know papers like that where you know the readership are going to initially be probably skeptical or hesitant about the narrative but then they might actually once they read a story think oh hang on a minute this isn't i'm not i I don't want to blame the the asylum seeker anymore. I want to blame, or I want to actually see the reality, which is whatever it is, you know, the Home Office acting a certain way. Yeah, I had a conversation about this really recently with someone who's spent decades working in this sector. um, And he suggested that I write for the mirror or, you know, try and place stories elsewhere. Um, And I'm not totally against the idea yeah I mean it it depends what the story is sometimes I can't really bring myself to do it um it does feel like I'm shouting into an echo chamber sometimes I think Twitter can feel like that in particular (laughs) but um you know working for the Guardian the indie tortoise meat you know sort of like lefty um lefty outlets um yeah you do tend to get a more supportive reception or audience um I think about sometimes engaging with people that hold different views to me, but sometimes I think it kind of entrenches people's views more to try and argue with them, but try and sort of state your case. And I think the best argument or the best way to go about doing it is to is to have the voice of somebody affected by these policies in your piece. Or ideally, for someone to actually meet someone who, you know, is going through some of these things, and then they will change their mind, but only then that they see a, you know, real human being in front of them, that's going through the suffering, only then I think can people change their mind. So, yeah, I think... As long as I always have a case study in my pieces, um, I feel that I'm going some way to to sort of illustrating, I guess, the impact that these policies have on real people. But yeah, ultimately, I I'd sort of decided after much sort of internal wrangling and debate that I probably wouldn't engage with these outlets because I just don't think for the amount of effort and energy it would take to try and change people's opinions it's also a reputational issue right like I don't particularly want to be associated with outlets where you know I don't agree with the like much of the coverage um, and particularly on these issues which are you know some of the most divisive issues in our society I don't I don't particularly want to engage with with those outlets is what I what I Sort of the conclusion I came to, although I'm aware that I do continue to sort of shout into an echo chamber, which I want to try and break out of. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. I agree. I agree with you. It's the same dilemma we have if if we ever think we want a story out there about our work or our or or our clients. On that and on on the impact you have, uh, and I mean your work or and work in general in terms of journalism. I mean, I've always felt in terms of you know the the the, the 
the way in which we can change the lives of the people that we represent in terms of you know, refugees, asylum seekers, those are sort of at the edges of like general social consciousness in terms of social justice. I've always felt it's a, it, there's a, it's a combination. Like we're obviously we're lawyers, we try and use the law to improve people's lives, but there's limitations on what the law can do for sure. Then there's politics, which often is the the, the, the most powerful way to change lives, i.e., by changing the legislation and implementing policies. But I've always thought journalism is uh, and the media is clearly another powerful tool because it helps try and change that conversation and try and, I guess, educate people as to what the reality is. So I've always thought there's a real powerful combination combination between the law, politics and the media. Um, how do you think you've uh, your work and work of, of, of a few individuals who have kind of really dedicated their lives to immigration asylum work? Can you give me some examples of how you think that's there have been some changes as a result of that work? Yeah, I mean, I think on, in two ways um, that jump to mind. So on an individual level, um, as I say, you know, people can be granted asylum within days or hours of publication. So, you know, it can change someone's life course immeasurably. And you kind of hope that, you know, by that one case being resolved because of your piece, you know, um, or a family reunited in a spousal visa issue, you know, resolved quickly or whatever, that that might, you know, go some way to changing, um, you know, changing the, the situation for others further down the line. It doesn't always, um, which is, you know, can be quite frustrating. Um, but yeah, on an individual level, I do think journalism can help substantially. And then on a macro level, I did a piece recently, which ended up on the front page of The Observer about asylum decision makers. And that was raised in the House of Commons by Yvette Cooper. Diana Johnson mentioned it, um, you know, in her sort of media rounds on Sunday morning. Um, And, uh, you know, not necessarily that anything will change within within the system, um, but slowly you know, sometimes you don't see immediate rewards, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. Um, you don't immediately see the outcomes of your reporting. But slowly, with, by raising awareness, as you say, raising awareness among the general public, but also, you know, people using it and pointing to it, you know, policymakers pointing to it as examples of the ways in which the system is so deeply flawed, um, it can it can bring about change slowly but surely. I mean, a great example of that is Windrush. You know, obviously, there's still a long way to go, um, you know, compensation payments and others. But, you know, these are huge, huge, deeply entrenched issues within our society. Um, and it takes time. Um, so I think, you know, it ta- I'm, I'm a naturally quite impatient person. <laughs> um, so it's great if you can see direct results, like on those individual cases that I mentioned. Um, but I think on the sort of macro level and the deeper changes to the systems, I think those things can take longer. And it's just a case of being patient. But it is really rewarding as a journalist when your when your work is being pointed to as, you know, ways in which the system needs to change. Um, and particularly on that asylum decision maker piece, that was all about sort of training. So different people spoke to me about, you know, places they've been recruited from. They had no knowledge or understanding of the asylum system. So, yeah, there were questions raised about that. Are we getting the right people into these positions? Training, you know, people saying after two days, we're basically left to our own devices to, you know, conduct these four to eight hour long substantive interviews and then you know really high pressure really high turnover so I was really proud of that piece um I don't think I don't think it will immediately kind of like we'll immediately see any changes but by sort of turning that story on its head and not just talking about the backlog you know we need to clear the backlog you know we hear this time and time again but actually looking at you know who are these people that are making these decisions should we be properly resourcing this you know, particular part of the system in a different way? Should we be training people up? You know, what are the issues that are actually um, bedded in this in this system uh, and how can we resolve those? So sort of pointing to some of those issues, I hope over time will will bring about some kind of change. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I and I think it, it, it will. Um, and I've seen it firsthand um, on, on many, many cases that you or others have been involved in where you've put pressure 
on the government through through reports. So many examples where they've had to change course or they've had to reflect because they've been made to, but because without it, um, it's almost, you know, media reporting, journalist reporting, exposure can be as powerful, if not more powerful than a legal intervention because it's the set and it and it's it often has the same final conclusion which is the home office is made to do something uh, or change course and i've seen that and i think it's really important that you know people like you continue in your work so um you know we thank you on behalf of our clients long may you continue to to expose the clear failures of the home office in 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 the current times and nicola thank you for today thank you thanks for having me it was a, a pleasure to speak to you Today I have the pleasure of being joined by May Bullman, currently the investigations editor at Lighthouse Reports, previously social affairs at The Independent. May, how are you? Hi, Sheroy. I'm well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, can't complain, can't complain. Uh, this government's keeping us all very busy, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But other than, that, other than that, personally, things are okay. May, I don't know the answer to this question, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners won't. What made you get into the line of journalism that you're currently in? It's a good question. I think from the outset, like when I decided I wanted to be a journalist... It was it was because I wanted to highlight suffering and I wanted to, I guess, raise the voice of the the voiceless in a way. I mean, that's like a bit of a cliche term, but yeah, to be able to give people a, a voice who don't have a voice, marginalised communities and so on. To be honest, getting into writing about immigration, it wasn't really something I necessarily planned to do. I think when I first started in journalism, I mean, you've got to kind of graft your way in quite a lot. Um, so, but the issues that were sticking out to me when I was, kind of starting out were to do with immigration it was around the sort of 20 2015 2016 when obviously the the refugee crisis so-called crisis was was happening and it was obviously a massive like talking point at the time and I just noticed that like there were certain issues I felt like weren't being covered enough like really early on I was actually looking back at I did this like I started this blog when I was first starting out in journalism which looking back is really cringy now but one of my first things was about like unaccompanied asylum seekers and the fact that they there was no proper dispersal system for them in the UK and that Kent and Croydon were taking in by far the most and those councils were saying we we don't have capacity but then no other councils were, were willing to take them in and uh, yeah um, I think that immediately kind of caught my attention these kinds of issues and then it was yeah, sort of in 2016 time, I had a big story. So I was shifting with The Independent after I did my master's in journalism. And I was kind of shifting elsewhere as well. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted, exactly what I wanted to do. But I I was in this Facebook group for like Calais volunteers, like volunteers in the jungle. And I just spotted this post and it was basically about, it was a bit of a controversial one, but like there was some sexual exploitation going on, basically volunteers towards refugees. And so I, I screenshotted the because it was really interesting and it was like really concerning cases. It actually got deleted like the next day, but I took it to my editor and it. <laughs> we ended up doing a piece on it. And it basically what the piece highlighted was that there was no, the Cali jungle was huge, but it, and in some ways it was incredible. Like I went there and it was an amazing place in many ways. It was a real sense of community, but it wasn't an official refugee camp. So there was no like regulation there. And actually it left a lot of people in real danger. So yeah, I had this piece about that and it made the independent kind of notice me. And then from that piece, I just you kind of get contacts in in those areas and because I was really interested in the issue and I felt like even from that story there were loads of follow-ups and from that point I just realized there's so many stories to do in immigration asylum that that's kind of how it started and I couldn't really get myself away from it there were points where I was like oh I should probably even when I became social affairs correspondent I was like I need to do more than just immigration so I did cover kind of other issues like poverty homelessness other social issues in the UK but it was always immigration that like I couldn't There were so many stories to be done and not enough journalists in the UK covering them that, yeah, it was just it's been a a kind of a constant for me. And I think I'm I'm still covering immigration in in a more kind of investigative capacity. And I I think I will continue to do so because these stories aren't going to go away. Like the situation, the suffering of immigrants and asylum seekers is not is not sadly going to go away and it needs to be highlighted. So. Yeah, that's kind of my way, how I started writing about these issues, yeah. You said you had to sort of graft your way in and you mentioned that you you had to get your editor to notice you. Trying to get into journalism, tell me more about that graft. What does it involve? Because I've got a few friends that have tried and they won't mind me saying that they've, they've failed miserably. They've had a very difficult time getting in. It seems super competitive. Yeah, it's not very nice. Like I look back at those kind of first two years when I was trying to get in and 
it was real like you just feel like you're competing against so many other people and it's pretty brutal like it's a bit of a doggy dog world um <clears throat> editors it's very hard to get editors to listen to you to to look at your pitches i think i was very into journalism kind of in the latter part of my time at university at southampton uni so i was writing for the student paper and stuff and then like i, I really knew i wanted to be a journalist so i um, did a master's in journalism and i went to city university in london which really helps get your foot in the door with the kind of national papers and obviously doing a master's is expensive. I did manage to get, there are various bursaries you can apply for to, to do journalism master's. So that's worth bearing in mind. To be honest, like the teaching in the master's was fine, but it wasn't amazing. The, the most important thing was actually sadly just like being in London and being able to, also I was able to stay with a relative, which I was very lucky in terms of like being able to live in London at that point in my life. So that really helped. And I was very lucky to have that. Um, but yeah, it kind of helps when you're in London, a lot of the big papers are in London like pretty much all of them so uh that really helps and you just have to kind of knock on doors constantly and <laughs> pester people pester editors and yeah it's a lot of uh, you can't really get knocked down you have to keep trying but I think I was also quite lucky like I got into the independent I started working there at a point where it was it had just come out of print so they were at a weird point and to be honest when I first started shifting there I was a bit like oh it's all clickbait but it slowly was getting a better reputation again. And I was quite lucky to kind of fall into this role when some, someone else left the social affairs role. And um, I was quite young at the time and not that experienced, but that my, like the editor gave me a chance and yeah, just went from there really. And and you said that there aren't a lot of people covering immigration and asylum, asylum generally, but you also said that there's a lot of stories and that, and there is, there is a lot of work to be done. Right? And, and just from the perspective of a lawyer, Sometimes one article from a prominent journalist can do more than we ever could in a short space of time, right? There are, there are cases that suddenly become front page news or whatever, and, and, and the issue is resolved within 12 hours. So why, why, why do you think that there aren't more people that want to cover this line of work? It's a good question. I mean, yeah, your point about media having kind of influence is something I definitely found quite early in my career. It's kind of depressing when you realise like sometimes lawyers would come to you because they've done everything they can from a legal perspective and like going to the media is the last the last kind of option and the sad thing is a lot of people don't have that access to going to a journalist and getting their story out there but why don't people cover it more it's a good question I think it's it's quite a toxic issue like increasingly so and maybe people are just scared to touch it and also like our media the media landscape in the UK is very polarized so there are quite a lot of papers that just don't really touch the issue or if they do they're covering it in a very much kind of inflammatory way um <laughs> I'm sure you know the kind of papers I'm talking about. And um, yeah, kind of also just towing the government line. And because the way the government is, like they're obviously putting out this very inflammatory rhetoric, it, like often journalists do often just kind of go with the government line and not not question it, which can be really frustrating to see from my perspective. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's just a case of not feeling a bit scared to go near it. Yeah, it's a hard one. I don't understand why, to be honest. Like, because again, early in my career, in a way, covering immigration was like, there were just so many stories to be told. It was actually throughout my time at the Independent, it was kind of overwhelming. Like I always felt like I wasn't even just pure, even if I was just purely covering immigration, like you couldn't get to all of the stories that weren't being told. And I was just thought like, why aren't there more? <laughs> why aren't there more journalists covering these stories? But yeah, I think there are maybe a few more now than there were a few years ago. So that's good. But yeah, hopefully more more journalists will start to cover these issues as well. I mean, you're, you're certainly one of the go to names in this sphere and, and for, for everyone who, who saw the fact that you were leaving the independent i know you gave certain individuals a heads up but then you put out the tweet that you were moving i'm sure it took a lot of people by surprise what what made you want to to switch to the more investigative stuff because from my understanding now you're you're going to be putting in a lot more work into the pieces that you publish right this is this is a lot less consistent in terms of putting stuff out there mm -hmm. what was what was the process behind that yeah i mean so i was at the independent for six years and it was you know, I really enjoyed that time and covering these issues. And there, you know, there were times where you felt like pieces really were making a difference. And certainly in individual cases, like you were saying, like there, there were quite a few cases where I covered covered someone's story and then the Home Office changed their mind. And that was a really good feeling. And you did feel like it was worth it. But then I did get to a point where I just felt like it was, I was writing about the issues, but nothing was changing. And I think also on a daily newspaper, like there's always a lot of pressure to constantly be putting stuff out and I felt a bit like I was having to rush stuff out and basically after those six years I was I just got to a point where I felt like I wasn't doing anything like new from the last year like new stuff in terms of there were some new stories but like 
anything kind of better like and I just always I started to get get an increasing urge to be able to do investigations and I did like try and do a few towards the end of my time at the independent some bigger investigations but it was always so difficult to put the time in because like every day there'd be something else that would come up and you'd have to cover so yeah I think it's just having the opportunity to like also develop my journalistic skills because again that's another thing I felt like I wasn't really developing as much as a journalist because I still wanted to be covering the same issues but it was quite hard to like develop my skills when I was kind of doing using the same kind of skill sets at each time I did an article. Yeah, whereas this like doing more investigative stuff is learning a bit more more on the ground work because that's again like capacity and time meant I couldn't go out on the ground that much. And also just like digging in deeper, basically digging deeper to try and have more impact on a policy level, like not just on an individual level. And that's what I'm hoping at Lighthouse like I can do. <laughs> Fingers crossed. But it's been interesting because. I've, to be honest, that I've been like for like two and a half months now, and it's been really good. But it's felt quite weird not covering like the the day to day immigration stuff, like with Manston and Suella Braverman and all these developments, these terrible developments in the immigration asylum world in the UK. Like not covering them on a day to day basis has felt a bit strange. But at the same time, it's given me a chance to like step back and see it from a, a slightly more an overview, like a perspective with more of an overview rather than like what's the next line, like what's the, what's my next deadline. Do you see what I mean? And it kind of means I can reflect a bit more on like what actually what needs to be covered like what can we look into that isn't already being looked at and that sort of thing so I'm kind of thinking I mean at the moment with with Lighthouse I'm doing some slightly more Europe-wide stuff but I'm also doing something on like left behind Afghans um, and that's kind of quite UK focused but the aim is to try and actually force government to like rethink (laughs) and the more you dig in deep the more stuff you can expose new stuff the more you're going to do that so that that's the reason for that and yeah we'll see how things go like in the next few years I might not stay in investigative journalism but I certainly don't plan to stop covering these issues (laughs) so yeah yeah you 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 sound like a a rapper at a massive record label and the label the label just stopped caring about what the album meant and and how much effort was going into the album and kept saying you need to churn out the next hit single that's yeah that seems seems to be yeah that's the thing that's how I felt yeah and it was you know the independent's great but they are there's a lot of pressure as probably in every newsroom and it did just start to feel like yeah it was more it was too churny (laughs) and even if the stories were quite important it was like not the time to do the proper in-depth stuff so yeah in this new job i'm able to do that would you say you're in contact with the home office and, and their press office a lot less now or still as frequently as you would have been before much less um i'm in touch with them sometimes um but yeah a lot less now because before it was often like daily pretty much it was yeah and they they didn't like me very much <laughs> i was gonna say what do you reckon they thought when they saw may bullman pop up in their inbox um Whenever I would email, no, normally I'd, so when I was at the Independent, when I'd call them up, there was like a generic press office number. And so you couldn't like, sometimes I had a few contact details for certain people, but like often they they were on like weird shifts. So you did just have to call this generic number and they'd always do the same thing. Like, hi, it's Mabel from the Independent. And you'd always hear this. Oh, hi, May. (laughs) They knew it was going to be, yeah, it was going to be like a story that they're going to have to try and defend. And like, I tried to build up a good relationship with some of the press offices, but it was quite a challenge, to be honest, because um, they had a very defensive approach to every story, pretty much. And there wasn't much like communicate in a, in a beneficial way for both of us. It was just like oh, we're trying to deny stuff or just not giving any information. Like there'd be individual cases and they, they'd always say we don't cover, comment on individual cases. But the only time they would like comment as a background would pretty much be like if they wanted to say, oh, but this person's a criminal. And actually I had some like, sometimes they made big mistakes as well. And it'd be really, it was so kind of good when I managed to catch them out on like a mistake that they'd made. Like at one point, not that, like like earlier this year, I, there was a, I'll, I'll keep this brief, but a guy, a guy got in touch who was, um he was a Somali British guy and he'd, no, he wasn't British, but he'd lived in Britain for like pretty much all his life. And he, he had applied for the EU settlement scheme, but like it had been a year or more and he hadn't heard anything back. And so I called the home office and he was like trying to contact them and they just wouldn't reply. He'd sent them loads of emails. Um, so I contacted them and they got back to me and I sent his case, his details and everything. I was like, what's the reason for this delay? And they, someone called me from the home office and they were all like, yeah, so this guy is actually in prison. He's like a murderer, serious criminal. And I was like, I've just spoken to him. And he was like, they were like, no, no, he's, he's a prisoner. He's a, he's a serious criminal. You don't want to be talking to him kind of thing. I was like, I called the guy back and I was like, wait, are you in prison? I'm confused. <laughs> and he was like, oh. and he was like silent for a minute. And then he was like, 
oh my god they think I'm my twin brother and his twin brother had been put in prison for a murder but because of that they just like hadn't they hadn't even bothered looking they hadn't even bothered telling him he had been refused or anything like that and then I yeah I called them back and that eventually they were like oh <laughs> we've made a mistake but yeah anyway I don't want to go into too much detail about all the press office stuff but it was it, yeah it wasn't easy and actually it's quite nice not to be constantly in touch with them anymore. A lot, a lot of that just sounds like when I call the government legal department it seems like lawyers and, and the GLD have a similar relationship to you in the press office. If that's, funny. that's funny yeah I'm not surprised to be honest. The thing is sometimes especially with fast-moving situations I mean we could use Rwanda as an example or Manson as an example there are bits of information that we don't get from our opponent that, that come out in the media right and, and because of the fact that the government is so tight-lipped on this stuff as lawyers in, in fast-moving cases we're actually very reliant upon what's put out there in the public domain so the, the journalism element of it is so important and it's, it's so important. that's why for us it's, it's it's actually quite difficult that not a lot of people cover this sort of stuff you know because there are a handful of amazing journalists you included that that would always be on it with that sort of stuff but it would be beneficial i mean forget the lawyers for a minute it would be beneficial for the clients if, if that information could be disseminated with that kind of frequency and that level of forensic detail. But with that forensic detail, I'm sure, is something that you're, you're, you're bringing to the investigative world. I'm assuming that because it is investigative, you can't, you can't give me any inside information as to, as to what's coming up, and that's all, that's all under wraps? Not too much. There's, you know, there's going to be a couple of things coming out in early December, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, just keep your eyes peeled. <laughs> a nice little, nice little yeah. Christmas present for the Home Secretary, yeah? Nice. <laughs> one, one thing that a lot of people in the legal sphere anyway talk about is having to, having to speak to clients who have been through so much on, on a day-to-day basis, it, it inevitably has an impact upon you. And we've started really getting a, a better insight into vicarious trauma, the causes of it, and how to deal with it. How did you deal with that? Because I know that one thing that all journalists place emphasis on is I don't just want this to be a hard legal piece. I want this to be about the humans that are affected. And that, that was always something that you, you kept front and center with your work. I mean, did, did it take a toll on you? I mean, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, because a lot of my work was about the human angle and speaking to people who are affected and um, including their voices in my pieces. So and it obviously, as, as you'll know, it, that becomes it's not just like one conversation like you you make a like you have a rapport with this person you've you've got each other's number they're in a terrible situation a lot of the time and you then can't just like ignore them if they're contacting you or you know so you end up with lots of phone numbers and lots of whatsapp conversations I've got it now like at Lighthouse as well it's probably about the same level because I'm still doing a lot of talking with with people who are being affected by things and yeah it's something that I've struggled with and I actually the first time I kind of realized it was affecting me was quite early on when I was at the independent and I'd had a, I went for a few days to Calais and it was like particularly grim there it was like awful weather it was raining and I just I spoke to quite a few families who were just sleeping rough and they were trying to cross the channel but they'd been there for ages and they were just like these kids were just completely like they were barely like children anymore they'd been through so much and I didn't really think much of it at the time and I don't think you do when you're con- when you're speaking to people you you kind of just think about obviously them and their well-being you're not thinking about how it affects you but I remember I got back after that those few days and I went like at the weekend I went to like a I think it was around Halloween it was like a Halloween party of a friend and I just like everyone was like, having a great time and I just like got really upset suddenly I was like I'm just here like I've managed I, I was able to just easily cross back cross the channel again and come to the UK these people are so desperate to be in the UK and I'm just here having a great time like what is going on and that was the first time I realized like it does impact you and I think it's something that like I'm sure lawyer, I mean maybe t- probably even more lawyers because you guys are like at least with journalists like people rely on you to a point but they kind of know you're not going to be able to change things but with lawyers like you're actually working on their cases and they probably put a lot of hope into that into like what you're doing and yeah I mean for both lawyers and journalists it's you it's something you have to think about otherwise it will just it will come back and bite you and the way I deal with it is I think sometimes you just have to give yourself a bit of time I've also got I I didn't have a work phone before but I I insisted that the independent give me one just because it was like you had to have some days where you weren't looking at because it would be like constant people getting in touch and you don't want to if I got a message on my phone, I'd seen it. I wouldn't want to ignore that. So sometimes I would just leave my work phone for like a day, maybe on a weekend and, or try to, <laughs> it's quite hard, but, and it's the same now actually. Um, so that's one kind of way of trying to cope. 
but it's, it's a difficult one like there's no one word there's no simple answer to it I think you just have to be aware of it and yeah same for immigration asylum lawyers like I'm sure uh, you guys probably talk about it a lot and how you deal with it but it's just being aware and like tracking how you're feeling um so it doesn't just all catch up with you because then you'll just become to a point where you're like unable to do the work yeah completely and that resonates with me so much the idea that you you then found yourself in this social situation in england and you just thought why have i got all this why is this why is this so easy for me and look at look at these other people are living it 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 hits me all the time because i I know it's it's so basic but a lot a lot of the clients that i serve and represent they, they look just like me man and they've come from they've come from the same regions of the world that my parents came from the only difference is i, I popped out and was given the maroon passport you know and that and that, and that dictated everything so it resonates so much yeah that's i was actually with lighthouse because it's quite nice because they actually like i went for a week last week to greece with everyone and like met my new colleagues and everything and they we had a dart session it's like this organization that helps journalists with trauma and stuff but they were talking about how it's quite it can be yeah vicarious trauma but that if you're someone who has is from a similar kind of community or comes from the same country as someone it's stronger because you can more associate with that person so i can definitely see how that would be even harder actually because you're like oh god i'm the lucky one like how is that the case yeah it's tough yeah but look you you seem to have done an amazing job at not just getting through that and dealing with it, but also continuing to put out high quality, massively important work. And we, we touched on the fact that there aren't many people that do this. What would your advice be to an individual who was looking to sort of follow in your footsteps and break in? Because you say it's quite hard at entry level. You need an element of persistence. If you had any top tips having been there and done it, what would they be? I think from my experience, you just have to keep writing about what you believe needs to be covered because particularly with immigration, like there is, there, there needs to be more people covering the kind of human element of it and not just towing the government's line all the time. So if you're producing those good stories, like they will get noticed. The other thing is contact building. So like it does take time, but building up a really good body of contacts is so important. And you get to a point where actually people are constantly contacting you about stories. So like then they just kind of flow and like the stories come. Um, so I think, yeah, just be persistent, talk to talk to people, make contacts, go to the right places, like go to protests, go to events if you can. And yeah, the longer kind of, it does take a bit of time, but I think, and also I guess with, in terms of getting into newsrooms, you do need to just knock on doors, pitch your stories, and just be persistent about it. But yeah, I'm happy to, I mean, if people want to get into like reporting immigration, I'm always here, I'm on Twitter. So feel free to drop me a message. Tell them where they can find you. I'm sure that most of our listeners know anyway, but give them your social handles. Yeah, it's May Bullman. Uh, yeah, just at May Bullman on Twitter. So just drop me a follow and send me we'll a message. We'll put it in the description. May cannot thank you enough. Oh, thanks so much. It's been really good to talk to you. Cheers, Sean.